Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about The Last Days of Ptolemy Gray, the six-episode series starring Samuel Jackson, which aired on Apple TV Plus earlier this year. My guest is the lead cinematographer, Sean Peters. Sean, it's nice to see you again. Nice to see you. Warning for listeners, today's conversation will contain spoilers. But before we dive into that, Sean, you and I spoke some before, and I understand mm. that your path to becoming a cinematographer is a little unusual. Well, this is sort of my third career. The way I got into film school was honestly by accident. You know, I, it's a long story, but, I, you know, when we talk again, I'll tell you how <laughs> I got into film school. And then when I came out of graduate school, I really didn't have a lot of opportunity, you know, to shoot. It was before digital. It was a difficult time to also practice the craft because everything's film at the time. You know, I guess maybe even as an African-American pursuing that career, you know, there weren't that many of us. You know, I can think of maybe two or three the most that were really working at a high level. You know, maybe there's 10 now <laughs> at a high <laughs> level. But yeah, so my options, you know, were kind of PAing and, and even that was difficult coming from where I, I didn't really know anybody. So I kind of got into technology by accident again, way before websites were even ubiquitous. You know, this is like during the AOL dial-up. What year are we talking about here? We're talking about 96. Mm, okay. Yeah, it was an early time. And me and my friend Warren, this, this kid I knew was, he was like, yeah, I'm building websites, like one page websites. And I was like, what's a website? And I kind of <laughs> knew a little bit. I knew a little bit about it, but not really. Yeah. You know, and he was like, why don't we partner together? You could do like the sales thing and I'll build the sites for these, these you know, for businesses. And we could start a company, it was called New York Magazine Online. And our goal was sort of like to get African-American businesses primarily in Harlem and the Bronx area where we lived to have little websites and we would consolidate them on this page. And, and it was more like, you know, whatever, it was like a, a magazine sort of format more than like big, robust websites. But at the time it was difficult, you know, businesses were like, what's that? You know, well, why we need a website? Our customers aren't online like that, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I was broke, you know, I was just out of school and um, needed work. So his brother actually was... Uh, this account executive, this data account executive for AT&T. And I was like, how'd you get that Mercedes? <laughs> he was this guy <laughs> like, he was like, well, I sold T1 lines, direct lines to Japan from New York for banks to transfer data. And I was like, wow, how much did that pay? And I was like, <laughs> so I like got an interview at AT&T and I got the job. So I ended up like as an account executive and kind of got into the internet, kind of the data world and IT world through AT&T. And then one of my customers was this African-American-owned information technology company that was one of my clients. And so I would interact with them and interface with them a lot. And they were like, why don't you come work for us? And so I ended up, you know, 20, you know, five or something like that. Or, you know, and they offered me, I think at that time, $95,000 base salary with plus commission. <laughs> you know, the, the division that I was in was the uh, sort of hard, more hardcore sort of uh, networking division where we were building infrastructure. That division decided they they wanted to leave and start their own company. And they were I'm just there. Maybe I was there six months, maybe seven months at the most. And they were like, you want to come? Wow. You can be a partner in our company. And I was like, oh. So I was like, now I'm a partner in this company based in New Jersey. I'm traveling from city to city and from New York to New Jersey. And I have this company. And, you know, we made some money, a lot of money quickly. And then the kind of the, the internet, the kind of crash happened. We lost a lot of money. And I ended up sort of taking a an out, a payment 
and my friend that I went to high school and college with was like, yeah, I'm working with this artist that we all both knew from college. And I was like, well, I'll invest, you know? So we ended up starting this record label and I ended up producing records and, well, A&R and records and going on tour and lost all my money, you know, in the music <laughs> business. <laughs> and so I got into, I, I made a name in the music business, you know, sort of, I, I started doing festivals and, and consulting for other music clients and labels and things like that. And, it just wasn't what I wanted to do, you know? So I had, a, I had like, literally, I was, I was hemorrhaging money and I had like $5,000 in the bank. And I remember talking to a friend of mine and he was like, you know, what do you really want to do? You know, we started talking about each other and our own careers. And that friend, I, he was a musician from Ghana and we were talking about his career. And I was like, why are you trying to rap, man? Why are you trying to sound like Nas? You should make Highlight from Ghana. Like, make some, make something that's different. Like, you're Ghanaian. Why do you sound like a dude from Queens, you know? Like, so he like took that advice and made this whole album called Native Son that had a mixture of like Ghanaian high life and hip hop. And then I took my, my little money and I went to NYU for this little summer course that was like four grand. And then I bought like whatever DSLR that was just came out. I think it was the Canon 7D or whatever that did like video, you know, whatever. And it's like literally it was like a thousand dollars or something. So I like spent every dime of whatever money I had. And then just by luck, I didn't know how I was going to pay my rent. This artist from, from Rotterdam the Netherlands was like a fan of the records that I was working on, on the label. So he contacted me to a friend and was like, I want to record an album in America and I want to, I want you to help me and I can pay you like a consulting fee. So I was like, ah, oh, you know, bet. <laughs> let's make it work. <laughs> and we made this record. And then after the record was made, he was like, you know, do you think you can come to Holland and talk to some of the labels for me? And I was like, sure. So I went to, and at the time I happened to be dating a woman from Rotterdam. You know, it just started like she met her oh, in New York. That's a nice coincidence, sure. It was a nice yes. coincidence. I ended up there. So I ended up being able to spend some time with, with her there. I had my little camera and I was like, you know, while we're here, why don't we just make a music video? So I did this music video with him. And then I came back uh, to the States and I was watching, I was just online. I saw this um, Indiegogo campaign for a short film by this director named Terrence Nance. And I was like, whoa, this dude is amazing. This dude is incredible. He's somebody I'd love to meet. And like, it couldn't have been two or three weeks later, I ran into him like on the platform of the subway, literally. <laughs> and, you know, because he has this big hair, so it was easy to spot him. And I walked up to him, I was like, yo, wow, I just saw, are you Terrence Nance? I just saw your campaign. And he was like, yeah, I just moved back here. And I was like, wow. And then we started talking, he was like, what do you do? And I was just like, oh, I'm, I just said it. I was like, I'm a cinematographer. <laughs> he was like, really? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, he's like, you have a camera? I said, yeah. He's like, well, can you send me something? So I had that one music video from Holland that I sent it to him. And he was like, oh, man, this is really beautiful. He was like, can you work with me on a, a music video of a friend of mine? His name is Blitz the Ambassador. And that's the kid that I was talking to about the high life, the Ghanaian music. I was like, oh, I'm no Blitz. That's my boy. Wow. And then we ended up shooting Blitz's music video. And we made a short film as a music video, which is kind of predated what people people are doing that a lot, sort of about a year later, but no one was kind of doing that then. So that got the attention. When that video came out, it got the attention of a lot of artists and we started shooting a lot, getting requested to shoot a lot of music videos. So that happened. And then he was working on a film called The Oversimplification of Our Beauty, which was an extension of that short film I saw the Indiegogo campaign for. Mm -hmm. So I ended up working on that. And then that film got into Sundance. And then we started making a few shorts after that. And a few shorts got in the film festivals and got a lot of attention. And two things happened to me. One day I got, a, I got an inbox 
message in my like for my website. And one of them was from a guy named Jordan Peele, right? <laughs> so he inboxed me and he said, hey, you know, I just had a meeting with Bradford Young and I was telling him about my new film that I'm trying to do. And I don't, I don't think he can do it. You know, he told me, he, had, he told me about you. And so I was like, oh, wow. So he was like, and I knew who Jordan Peele was from the Key and Peele show. I was like, I'm a big fan. And he was like, oh, wow. So he sent me this script for this film called Get Out. <laughs> you know, and I read and I read the film and I was like, fuck, man, they're going to let you make this? This is probably a year or two before they made it. So anyway, we got into a lot of conversations about it. And he ended up flying to New York, we ended up having dinner, and we hit it off right away, like as, as people and friends. At that time, I'd done a small film too. I did one feature, another feature, oversimplification, and another feature called 72 Hours, A Brooklyn Love Story. Really, and I got an LA Film Festival. Uh-huh. So... I'm out there meeting with Jordan Beale. I met with the, the production company who had the film at the time. And they were like, well, Jordan, you're a first time director. This dude's only done one movie, two movies, Max, and we need a real horror DP. So I didn't get the job. Mm-hmm. But all that, long story short, not long after that, I had met with a few, uh, they, another 180 Bradford's agency, and they kind of met with me and then they patted me on the head and they were like, get some more work, you know, dear Bell, and we'll, we'll holler at you. You know, and I was like, all right. And so I went back to New York and was like, just I was working. So I wasn't like making a ton of money, but I was making good money as a DP at this point. I was making a living. And then I, you know, couldn't have been a week or two after that one agency meeting where they patted me on the head. I got an inbox from a woman named Mary Young. And she was like, hi, I'm Mary Young from the William Morris Agency. I'd like to take a meeting with you. She was in New York at the time when they had the New York office. And she was like, you know, would you like to have breakfast? And I was like, okay. So I had breakfast with her. I'm talking to her, and we we had a, we hit it off very well. And so I was like, "Thank you," and I was about to leave because I figured it was going to be like the other agency meetings, you know. And then she was like, "Well, what do you want to do?" And I was like, "What do you mean?" She was like, "Well," <laughs> I was, she was like, "Well, I want to sign you <laughs> to William Morris," and I was like, "What? <laughs> Can you give me a day to make a decision?" And I was like, "I called Bradford," and I was like, "Oh man, what do you think? You know, Mira Young, blah blah." blah. He was like. Mira Young from William Morris. She's amazing. You should sign with her. So I ended up signing with Mira. And she's really a great architect, you know. So she kind of chipped away and, and got me like two features and read the right features for me, stood behind me, and um, I am where I am now. You know? And so, how does it come together then for Ptolemy Gray? You know, at this point, you know, I'm a fairly unfairly successful DP before Ptolemy Gray happened. You know, not a series of that size, you know, but I've done a few features and I've done a lot of commercial work at this point, you know. Uh, there's a producer named Diane Housley who used to um, produce masterclass, those masterclass videos. So I used to do those. I used to, do, I used to DP some of those. It's like David Mamet, and a few of them, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I can't even think of all Steve Martin. I uh, did um, Herbie Hancock and a few other people early masterclass. They they sought me out and was like, we want to look at this aesthetic and looking to make this more filmic looking, you know, can you help us, you know, blah, blah. So a friend of mine, Nikisa, who was a producer, hired Diane and Diane and I, friends in common, we became sort of friends through that process. And, and so at, at a certain point, Masterclass, I guess, couldn't afford me. And Diane would call me and complain, like your agent doesn't even take my calls. And, <laughs> and so I was like, I know, it's your, your fee is, you know. But anyway, she called me. She happens to be Walter Mosley's business partner and producer. 
So she called me and she was like, I need you, I want you to read these screenplays. And I was like, sure. She's like, the director's Rami Barani, so you have to sort of meet with him and he's executive producer and, and directing the pilot, so he has to sort of want to work with you. But I told him about you, he saw your work and he's interested in talking to you. So I took a meeting and you know, I read them. I, I thought, oh, Diane, I love these screenplays. You know, we should talk. You know, so I met with Brahmin. And, you know, usually what I do is I put together like a pitch presentation, usually about 100 pages, you know, slides. And, and the way I kind of pitch isn't an, an aesthetic only pitch. It's really about story. You know, so I go through a whole narrative journey of how you can use lighting in the camera and to tell the story, basically, and, and emotionally. And then aesthetic is usually the last thing I talk about because that usually changes, you know, once you get, get into the, you know, once you start talking to the director, you really nail that out, but you don't want to say, this is the, the aesthetic of the film. It's, you know, you know, it's about what, how you view the story. And so we did that and um, he, he hired me, you know, or they hired me. Um, and they were like, well, you know, they were, it was very rushed because Apple was kind of pushing them to get started because it was a, a schedule situation for Samuel Jackson. He had like a hard out to do like the Avengers or something like that, or, <laughs> or, or the other one, uh, his, his, his solo thing, you know, you know, Nick Fury or whatever. So he had to like go to London and do like a Nick Fury movie or something. And he was like, this is it. So we got to start like bomb, bomb. And so they hired me quickly, but it was like, they didn't really know it was going to be one DP or two DPs. So it was a lot of conversation with me around like, they didn't even have all the directors hired. Six episodes, and Ramin can only do, at the time, can only do one in six. So initially, I was only supposed to do one in six with Ramin, you know? And I was like, okay. And, and they were like, we don't know who the other directors are yet. So they were, they were hiring, trying to hire last minute. People were not available. So finally, they once they started getting a little bit of traction, they were like, we need, they're like, you know, would you be opposed to bringing on another DP if you were part of the hiring process? Blah, 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 blah. So that kind of happened late. That happened after. We had already started pre-production. I'm in Atlanta already by that time. So there's another DP that was working with Diane on Masterclass. When I first met her, um, Hilda Mercado, when I first met her, she was a camera operator from one of the things that I was shooting. And then she started DPing them. And she's a fantastic DP, but she hadn't done anything of the scale. So it was really, you know, she's a woman of color, Mexican woman. And um, Diane really wanted to push DPs of color, women that kind of thing was really important to the production so she got she gave Hilda a chance and she delivered you know hugely but she came on sort of a bit later in pre-production and we were able to sort of you know she's able to sort of get in sync with me and by that time I already hired the crew and you know she kind of came on and we did a camera test and she was she was really respectful you know I'm I'm, I want to I want to follow what you're going to do um and she did her own thing as well you know obviously a lot of her own thing it was beautiful but yeah that's kind of how the process worked and Ramin and I our process where we'd spend a lot of time in his apartment in Atlanta, his rental apartment, just looking at footage. We did a lot of like looking at films. You know, Ramin's also a professor at Columbia. He's a film professor, so he referenced a lot of movies and his, his sort of film intellect and literacy is very high. It was a lot of like, let's get on the same page of, you know, what we're thinking. And he was open to what I was thinking. It wasn't like, yeah, I'm thinking this and this is what I'm thinking. He was like, what are you thinking? What do you have? And I'll bring this, and I'll bring that. So he was very open to me. I didn't even question anything in terms of lenses, lens choice. I had my, her, I hired my colorist. I had LUTs made. You said LUTs. What's LUTs? So a LUT, a LUT is a lookup table. It's basically, it's the, it's basically the color treatment that you that you put into the camera. 
So it's like having a, a color treatment in the camera that you can view on the monitor. Mm. So you're seeing the color, you're seeing at least a preset of a, of a color treatment. We made three of those treatments, one for the modern day, one for his flashbacks to the 30s when he was a kid, and then one for his flashbacks with his ex-wife in, in the 70s. We started with those three. We had different lenses as well for different emotional periods of his life. Well, this might be a good point for us to talk about story. I think it's interesting when you talked about not bringing in the aesthetic, but first talking about how cinematography is going to be part of that story. And the story here is that Ptolemy Gray has dementia, but through a medical procedure, he gains clarity for a period of time. And of course, yeah. there's dramatic events uh, going on around that. But his state of mind and really the world around him is a huge part of that. I'm guessing figuring out how to capture that was a big part of these conversations. There is this transition, right, from full dementia, being a recluse, you know, and having really only contact with really one person, you know, his, his, his nephew Reggie, to being threat after the spoiler, after Reggie gets killed, he gets thrust into this new world with this new person and, and this new procedure. And then all of a sudden he has this kind of hope and a new mind and kind of a new lease on life temporarily. But really, you know, when we talk about the story in his internal world, why was he dealing with dementia? Why was he a recluse? And, why? and uh, you know, we sort of unpack that a bit. This is a, a person who dealt with a lot of regret, felt like he wasn't actualizing things in his life that he didn't amount to much and he didn't have the courage to sort of actualize himself. He didn't take the charge of his mentor, Koi Dog. And there was a lot of things that he was struggling with internally around regret and non-actualization, you know, which we may assume that that's what kind of pushed him into this sort of state of retreating, you know, so he became someone who lost his memory and lost his ability to sort of function in the world and be a part of it. And so our thinking photographically was we'd start the series really dark and really cold, the light that would come into the apartment. Even the way we lit him was primarily from the windows. We didn't do a lot of like wrapping fill light or beauty light on him in the first episode. We wanted to feel like you walked into this person's apartment. It, you almost wanted to, to, to smell visually. You know, we wanted to feel like this is putrid and desolate and it's not beautiful. And so we, we allow things to feel naturalistic, but also cold. So the, so the lights we were using were a cooler color temperature. And it was like it was overcast outside. So a lot more softer pushes inside the window. And we built this apartment on stage so we could do anything. So a lot more soft pushes, a little cooler light. And, you know, the windows were more closed. There wasn't a lot of light coming in. You know, sometimes he would go into complete darkness, you know, which was scary for me. <laughs> to be honest, you know, I was like, "Oh my God, Am I, did I do? Did I, did I go too far?" And there was also a bit, a bit of I won't you know, get into too deeply, but there was a bit of a conflict between Ramin and and Sam on set, so that created a bit of a tension that also feel that you can feel in the first episode, you know. But it also maybe helped his performance in some way. It was interesting, but it's hard for me to watch that first episode sometimes because it's so it's almost anti beautiful sometimes. But I know it's right for the story. And sometimes as a cinematographer, you got to be brave. You know, and then I was able to sort of redeem myself a little bit in episode three. <laughs> Six. <laughs> yeah. Because I brought more hope in. I brought more beauty into the world. So I noticed when his apartment gets cleaned up, it actually does become brighter. Like you are making mm -hmm. choices about how you film. It's more than just clearing the space and moving stuff from the windows. You're able to, to see things differently. 
he pushed brighter. We made went much brighter. The sun that we made come through the window is more directional. We it's warmer. We use a different set of lenses. It shifts, you know. And then if you look, if you notice, I don't know if you watched the whole series, but if you notice that at the end, when he's in the when he's in the hospital, he goes back to that sort of gritty, cold, less warm, less beautiful world again. As he's fallen off, he's yeah. What he's returned to? As, yeah, exactly. Well, Sean, you also mentioned the flashbacks, and that's there's him from his childhood, and then him meeting the woman that becomes his wife in the seventies, and then there's also visions where sometimes his wife appears now, but mm-hmm. it's also clearly filmed in a way that it's not full flashback. But we're I'm just fascinated about how all that comes together from your perspective. Well, we were we were really intentional about making sure we separated those different things visually, and we didn't want to, you know, have a ghost appear with like VFX or something. You know, we didn't want like a CG person to like appear out of the wall. We, we talked about that. I think it was one conversation with some of the people. I can't remember who, but eventually they were like, "Oh, let's do that," and we we're like, "No, we don't want to do that." We wanted them to be natural in his life in a way, and like, they would just be there with the camera move, and then we used different optical, in-camera optical techniques, different types of uh, glass, you know, like diopters. We even broke glass and put it in front of the lens at times. And we use, I mean, at one point, when he looks through the eyepiece of his apartment, that's basically a super wide-angle lens. We cut off the bottom of a Martinelli's cider bottle and put that over the lens to make that sort of eyepiece effect and dirty it up. I do remember that shot, yeah. So we use a lot of, like, practical effects on the lens itself as opposed to post and so we wanted and we wanted the flashbacks to be a different color palette you know obviously different set design but different color palette different feelings but we wanted them to be cinematic we thought he would embellish his dreams dreams are often romanticized you know you never have you don't dream in like a sort of hyper realistic way like your life is i would never dream about doing the zoom call you know it'd be something else it'd be a heightened emotion Right. You know, so we wanted we wanted the dreams to feel more heightened and more cinematic. So even in the dreams, they're like more crane shots and like much more bigger scope and more romantic in a way. And um, his life is le- is less that. You know, once Robin comes in, it gets more of that. But because even though there's not a sexual romance, there is a romance love affair between the two of them. So it becomes more loving and warm and you know browner, warmer. But the the people from his past. I feel like if you were someone having a delusion about someone from your past in your room, it would just feel like they were there. So that's what we, that was a real clear decision, but we wanted to skew his vision during that time. And even when you see him, there was another lens that we have old French lens, an ingenue lens, that it was a set of lenses made for surveillance. And they were really fast, meaning the aperture opened really wide to let a lot of light in. Um, and so when that happens, the depth, the depth of field is really super shallow. Right. So there was a lens. We used that lens. It was a kind of possibly shallow lens every time the camera was on him when he was up. Many times when he was in the internal, we wanted to show him like in an internal world, like he would just escape inside himself. We put that on and the whole world behind him. A lot of things we did were in camera. You know, there was obviously there were a lot of VFX as well, you know, like extending world, extending 1930s. Sure. Some of the inter- internal fire stuff, you know. But uh, as much as we could, we did in camera. 
Now, when you were talking about the uh, relationship they have on screen, it reminded me of when you joined me last season to talk about the Oscar nominees for cinematography. And we talked a little bit about collaboration. And you said that that was like dating with all of the connections and vulnerabilities that, that go along with that. Tell me a little bit about what the collaboration was like on Ptolemy Gray. You know, television is a little different from, from feature films. I think feature films, the collaboration is a bit more romantic, you know, because you're with one director and you have, a, you have a longer period of time with one person and you're very vulnerable, you're opening up. Anytime you're opening up a creative space with someone, I think it's a very similar energy to like romantic and sexual energy. Even if it's the same gender, you know, you kind of fall in love with them. If you're, even if you're not queer or queer or whatever, you know, if opposite gender, gender, same thing, you kind of fall in love with them. I, I worked on a film with a trans male director and we, I fell in love with him, you know, and not to say, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. But yeah, you sort of like fall in love for a temporary period of time because you're so open. If you're a person who would shut that, does that feeling off because of whatever your mind or whatever thing you're, you're hang up is about that. I think you don't achieve the same level of output. You know, you have to almost be open to it. So does that mean in TV though, because you are working with a more, I don't know, larger group of people, and as you mentioned, several directors, and yeah. but you still achieve that same kind it's just of faster. feelings or how, like how's it It's just not as long. Mm. The dating period is not as long. <laughs> so it's more of a love affair than it's a relationship. <laughs> you know, it's like a one night stand, you know, it's like you're still attracted, but you know, you're not going to live with the person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whereas a feature film is more like a marriage to, to a certain extent. I'll be a short. TV is more like, you know, you're still protective, you know, the new directors that come in, you're, you're protective of them and you're protective of their vision. You're, you're open to them, but it's like, you know, you're working with them for, you know, a couple of weeks as opposed to three months, you know. Sean, on that, we're going to call it a wrap. It's really great having you here. Thank you, Skid. I appreciate it, man. It was a great talk, great conversation. You know, listeners, I also appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info at our website, below the line, one word dot biz. That's B-I-Z. You'll also find past episodes and links to all of our social media. So check it out. Sean, what have you been working on? Where else can people see your work? I just finished a series for HBO for Random Access Lines. You know, we jumped right off that series and went right into commercials. So I just shot a commercial in Mexico City. And next week, I'm headed to Kenya and Uganda. And I'm on Instagram, Sean Peasy, P-E-E-Z-I-E-S-H-E-W-N-P-E-E-Z-I-E. SeanPeters.com, whatever. Don't really, you know, update it. that's not the best place to catch you well Sean I love having you on the show we'll get you back to talk about some of these other projects for me closing credits thanks to Curtis Five for our music John Juan for our logo and to all of our listeners I do appreciate you please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends thanks again from Below the Live